Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. Hey, welcome everyone to another episode of Room for Growth. Today we have Ashley on the podcast. Ashley is the global head of lifecycle marketing at Amazon Music. So we're super pumped to have her insights. And we were just talking about Taylor Swift album drops recently. And so, boom, we got somebody from the music industry on the podcast. And uh, yeah, she's also unique in terms of a lifecycle marketer, but also with a technical background. And so, Billy, I know we really enjoyed our conversation with Ashley talking about, about skill set. Sometimes the technical aspects of what we do can hold people up, particularly if they're, if they're purely marketing. So what, what's your take on combining the skill sets? Yeah, I mean, thing number one, holy smokes, Ashley is so badass. She starts talking and she's like, let me explain how I started a company in fashion to solve a problem that I saw in the industry. Uh, I was a college athlete at one of the best universities for sports. By the way, I have an MBA and now I just like lead music here after working at huge other brands. I was like, like stars in my eyeballs for her. Um, she is awesome. But yeah, she touches on something that I think is changing in marketing that's really critical. It's definitely something that we offer at Willow Tree and is a huge differentiator for us which is the technical skill set that marketers have in their tool belt more and more often in order to enable campaigns that are high performing, that are personalized, that have things like unique coupon codes in them or unique offers, unique content models that are deployed across these different audience segments. You have to just be increasingly technical. Also, how different lifecycle messages ultimately drive people to an app or a web experience uh, we need marketers who are more in control and able to speak the technical language to build both experiences out. And I think that that's something that Ashley kind of underplays in her bio is that her engineering background has really helped her advance in a marketing space, but certainly a trend that we are paying attention to and that we're like hiring towards. And Billy, I've got to acknowledge that yesterday, as we're recording this today, yesterday was Halloween. And uh, you've got a little bit of your like Halloween vibes going on. And um, would you want to share what you went as, <laughs> uh, uh, for Halloween this year, Billy? Yeah, I'm only mildly embarrassed as a 32 year old woman, but you all know that we're extremely brand loyal to our clients. We've talked about this brand before. We've talked about this person before. I love her. She's a queen. She is outrageously talented, like such a boss. So I'm proud to do it. I went as Charlotte Flair from the WWE. Nice. I did not go as anything this year, which is the most lame kind of, I should have gone as as uh, one of the, the the wrestlers. I'm not sure who, maybe Seth Rollins is my, my alter ego, so. But you have preteen and teen daughters. So would you please give us a quick deep dive into how Gen Z girls are thinking about Halloween? Like, did you go trick-or-treating? What they dress as? What are the trends? We went We went trick-or-treating. I saw some Pokemon. That was probably the most popular costume, which is kind of interesting. What I've discovered about uh, Gen Z is that they only, it's all about the group costumes. Nobody is an individual. You, you organize your, your costume around 
around all of your friend groups. So we had one uh, of my daughters was the Hocus Pocus trio with two of her friends. And then another was randomly Winnie the Pooh with a group of her friends. So it's all just about the group costumes, I think is what Gen Z is all about. So I have a Gen Z trend that I don't want to alarm you with, but I think it's going to be very alarming, which is that of my Gen Z friends, the number of them that can name the best movie scene in Halloween cinematic history, understand the song reference that goes with it and just recognize this character pains me. How do people not know Beetlejuice anymore? I feel like Beetlejuice has just not followed with Gen Z. It's like such a Gen Z movie. It's kind of a weird movie. So I don't think it like it just doesn't carry. I don't think it's a, it's got very, very weird 80s vibes. Was it released in the 80s or early 90s? But it's so great. The scene in the kitchen where the where the the spirits have possessed the dinner, the crew that's having a dinner party and they do that ridiculous dance. Like if anyone is having a bad day, stop what you're doing. Go Google dinner party scene in Beetlejuice and just like have two minutes of delight. Yeah. Well, I think Hocus Pocus has stolen, uh, at least with Gen Z. I saw Hocus Pocus decorations in yards. So it seems like it's more more in than Beetlejuice. But I do not get it. I think Hocus Pocus is out. I would rather have like Casper, certainly Beetlejuice, like bring back Edward Scissorhands. Like, I don't know. I don't don't know. I think we like we like fun vibes. And that's what Hocus Pocus brings here. So. That's a good point. All right. Well, I feel like uh, you and I have descended into holiday madness yet again, and we should indeed just get over to our guest, Ashley Albee. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to Room for Growth. We are so excited to have you here today. Um, For our listeners, Ashley is the global head of lifecycle marketing at Amazon Music. She has a rich background in digital marketing, global brand, product strategy, and product development. And before her role at Amazon, Ashley worked for other companies like Google and Pepsi, a couple of small names you might have heard before. Ashley is an expert in driving growth for global brands through engagement, retention, and product differentiation strategies. She also has a huge entrepreneurial spirit that we're excited to dive into a little bit. She served as the marketing lead for New York City startups such as Miss Dorsey's Kitchen and founded the tall women's apparel brand, Alyssa Vermel Apparel. Something we're super eager to talk to Ashley about is the advocacy that she's doing to increase women and minority representation in startups and in tech. And then if that were not enough of a resume, in Ashley's free time, she also mentors small business owners, hopeful entrepreneurs, and grads going into tech. So Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, Ashley, we're, we're super excited to uh, get to know you a little bit and and share some of your expertise with with our listeners to get us started. Could you just tell us about what your introduction to tech was and how you started developing a love for lifecycle marketing? Yeah, so I would say my initial introduction to tech was actually my undergrad degree. So I actually went to a technical college. I went to Georgia Institute of Technology. I have an engineering background. And so as an engineer, even though I didn't do computer science and whatnot and software engineering there, everyone there had to learn how to code. It was a requirement to graduate that everyone had to code at least Java and some SQL. So I, even though I did like industrial and biomedical engineering, I kind of had that little bug of like, oh, how does this actually come out in terms of an actual product? And after spending some years away doing regular engineering, 
doing some entrepreneurship stuff, working in CPG marketing. I realized that I wanted to be a part of what is the next foray of the world of marketing, the world of product development. And for me, that was tech. And so at the time, um, when I first started interviewing for tech companies, I had actually quit my job at Pepsi and I had been working full-time doing my apparel company in New York, Alyssa Vermel. And honestly, Google reached out via LinkedIn and was like, hey, we know you're over here doing your own thing, but we saw your background and we think it would be, you could do this role. Their team is called Growth Marketing, called the Growth Lab at Google. And of course, everyone gets excited when you see a message from Google, like, hey, you want, and asking you to come to them versus you like throwing your resume into a vault where they probably never get seen. So I actually took the interview, took the conversation, not really expecting it to go anywhere, given I had been removed from like corporate work for a while. And I got the offer and I decided to take it mainly because one, I thought would be a great marriage between my engineering world. I'm doing industrial engineering, which is really process-oriented, understanding how to develop bigger products, as well as the marketing world that I have been living in post my MBA, um, where I could really figure out how do I make products more efficient? How do I make the process of consumers who engage with those products more efficient? And kind of bridging that gap between the engineering world and the marketing world, which honestly, very few marketers kind of know how to do. And I felt like I had a, a foot in each of those spaces. I thought I could do well in that role. I was curious what got you into, first of all, a clothing line and apparel line feels intimidating in and of itself. What took you down that path? What made you think, man, I just need to start my own clothing line? And how did you have the background to be confident that you were going to be successful at that? So the main driver for the clothing line is I'm pretty tall. You probably can't tell because I'm sitting down. So I'm about six feet tall. And I was a high school athlete. I was a college athlete at Georgia Tech. And, you know, honestly, I quickly learned I wasn't going to go pro <laughs> in my sport. I did track and field and I walked on to the basketball team and both of which were, you know, short stints where I was like, okay, cool. This is cool for a little bit, but I will not make money with this, nor did I want to knowing like how much women athletes are typically paid unless you're like Serena Williams. And so I realized I need to get a job and I didn't have access to business casual clothes that fit a taller athletic frame. And myself, my other basketball team members, my track, my volleyball friends, we all were having the same struggles. And I even write in one of my bios for my line is my actually first business suit was a men's suit that I had my mom tailor because that's the only way I could find pants that were long enough for my legs and long enough for my arms. And that's why I had to have them taken like the chest and the waist to make it look like not a box. And so to, that was to me the first aha, like this is a problem I want to solve, right? And so I did not know I was going to be successful. However, I'm just generally an ambitious person and like believe like I can just do whatever I put my mind to. But I did take some design classes. I enrolled in a fashion design school and spent about a year and a half, like getting a certificate and understanding fashion design while I worked my full-time job, just so I felt I could talk the language to designers. I knew I wasn't like my, my um, superpower is business. I can build any business and scale any business. I was not trying to be like in the back sewing, you know, sketching things out. That is not my wheelhouse. 
but I knew I could outsource that. I wanted to make sure I could speak the language of those designers so that they could be efficient in doing what I needed to do. So I took the time, educated myself about the history of the fashion business, how to build a clothing line, figuring out what the actual gap was, what the total accessible market is for tall women globally and in the US and understood the competitors, all the basic stuff. This is even before I went to business school. So I don't even know how I knew all this, but you know, I did it. And I started that. And then while I was in business school, it's really what helped me catapult to understand like how do I grow this business? How do I get investment? How do I drive an e-commerce business? How does social play a role in this? How does partnerships play a role in this? So I leveraged my um, business school degree at that time to really try to scale it. Uh, just so I can really find a way to operationalize this business and serve this community of tall women who still to this day, honestly, don't have a great offering of clothing options. I'm so impressed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Excellent start. And that was all the fun facts. So Ashley, we've been talking a ton about music platforms on Room for Growth. It's just such an interesting space, this intersection of the product experience, how you can make music sticky in interesting ways, how you can personalize in interesting ways. But talk to us a little bit about how Amazon differentiates itself in such a competitive landscape when you have Spotify, you've got Apple Music, you've got so many potential platforms to listen and choose from. Yeah, this is a great question. And this is like what consumes me daily at this job is really figuring out how do we differentiate ourselves? Because, and I'll be honest, Amazon Music is not the number one platform, right? Let's just put that out there right now, but that's totally okay because what does differentiate us is um, we have such a other like large suite of other Amazon products that come along with, like, example, a Prime membership which no one else can do, right? So Spotify can't replicate the offering that Amazon can give you for the price that we do. Same with Apple. So what I think our biggest differentiator is, for example, if you are a Prime customer, you get Amazon Music for free. And we actually just launched today a new version of Amazon Music for our Prime customers, where we now offer you the entire suite of catalog that we own and operate for free as a Amazon Prime customer, you would have to pay additional, you know, $10 or 15 bucks, depending on the tier that you have with Spotify or Apple to get access to that same ad-free music of, you know, podcasts, right? So that's something that only Amazon can do that I can get really excited about. I can get really behind. It's really more about how do I communicate to Amazon Prime members that they have this benefit because the majority of the people who have Amazon Prime, to be honest, didn't don't know that we Amazon Music comes with this benefit, myself included. Like before I took this job, I was like, oh really? I get this for free? Oh, <laughs> you know? So that's part of what my job is, right? Is to drive that awareness, drive that engagement with Prime customers as well as um to make sure they understand all the great things that you get as a Prime member. And then, of course, um, if you want additional features or whatnot, that's where we can have a chance to upsell you and say, hey, okay, if you want this extra little razzle-dazzle, then you got to pay more, right? But we've got an opportunity to give a really good, solid baseline of a platform that Spotify and Apple can't match for free, right? So that's probably what I would say our biggest differentiator is. And I was just, I saw an article in the last couple of days that, Spotify is kind of thinking about a price increase and at the same time, all these headlines about economic kind of recession uh, stuff, I would think that it sets you up to, 
to be in a, a really great place. Um, and when users realize, oh, this is free and Spotify just got more expensive, why don't I just use use this service? One of the things that I love about the music industry in particular is that people who listen to music have fairly complicated needs. It wouldn't seem like it on the surface, but figuring out how do you serve them the right content? So a mix of what they've listened to in the past, they clearly love, maybe things they haven't tried in the future. There are so many ways to personalize. There's so much potential content and audience segmentation that you could apply that it's actually extremely complicated. How do you think about the basic problem of audience segmentation and personalization? Yeah, so I think the first thing is understanding what is the highest order of their needs. And that is making sure that whenever they come to the platform, whether it's, you know, on their morning commute, whether it's while they're at the gym or, you know, their evening downtime, that we're giving them exactly what they came there for. So knowing why they're there and knowing what's their normal cadence in that space. So that's like the very first thing you have to provide them from a recommendation engine is their baseline needs. Then you can stack on top of that anything that we think could continue to delight them. So a sound-alike album or a sound-alike podcast or something net new if they are a customer that tends to like discovering brand new things that is kind of, you know, unique but adjacent to what they would normally listen to. And then the third thing you can stack on top of that is how we um, engage with our industry artists, right? So sometimes we'll hear from a label and say, hey, we, we really want to promote X artist. And so we will do a live stream for them. We'll build some kind of additional content for them. And so that's like the icing on top of the cake because we want to do two things. One, please and appease our artists, our labels and our the, that side of the house. But also we don't want to do it to the point where we're over-serving our customers, where they're annoyed. And they're like, why am I keep getting a push about making the sound? And I only listen to one song of hers. You know, that happens a lot with some art. Sometimes where people are over-indexing on industry needs versus the customer needs. So how I typically look at it as adding that as the third layer to only incorporate industry needs or artist-level content as to make sure you don't disrupt the customer's journey into the platform so they can still be delighted with their normal everyday experience, but then get a little bit of insights of things like that they could like, or we may hope that they like, because we want them to interact with it and tell them yes or no, so we can then improve our algorithm for the next time they, they come to that. I love that. So part of what you think about is how do we not disrupt what they're doing in the day, but make sure that if they're coming for some surprise and delight, if they want news, if they want what's new in the industry, it's right there, it's ready made. But what an interesting choice. How much pushback do you get on that decision? And how do you kind of, how do you fight against the monetization of a terrible user experience? It's very hard because at the end of the day, we are a business, right? We are trying to make money. The more money we make, the better. It's very hard to be profitable in the, the music industry in general because label costs are so expensive, right? Everyone's on a pay per stream or some some kind of breakdown of that. And you, of course, the more people listen, the more you have to pay. So it's it's hard to sometimes only put the needs of your customer ahead of like your business needs. So that's where the conflict comes. And so we're constantly in a battle of, okay, what is the most important thing? Okay, we need people to stay. 
right? At the end of the day, if we don't have good retentions, which is part of my, my role as a big, basically engaged in a retention lead, is making sure people stay. So we have to balance the desire to drive you know, ads, the dr- desire to drive, you know, content that's been monetized with our artists with the desire to make sure people stay engaged and delighted and they stay long-term because that customer LTV will only get larger the longer people stay on the platform. So that's kind of the way I constantly go back and forth is like from a financial standpoint, it's like, hey, we see that LTV starts to lag or we see retention or churn starts to, you know, lag when we over communicate X or we under communicate Y, right? And so being able to always tie it back to a financial metric that we know leadership cares about, they care about revenue, they care about LTV, they care about how long uh, people retain on the platform. That is how we're able to win some of those battles to say whether or not we're doing the right thing on behalf of our customer. You know, in the introduction, you mentioned some of your technical experience and um, then paired with your entrepreneurial experience. But how, how would you say your technical background helps you in um, a growth marketing job on the day to day? Yeah. So for me, it's really helps me understand like the product team point of view and how the product team is motivated and incentivized. So half of my job is understanding what are the right marketing communications, right marketing channels necessary to bring people through the life cycle of the product. But the other half is taking like customer feedback or brand information and improving the product itself, which will inherently help customers go through the life cycle better. So by me having a technical background, I know how to code. I know I do a code review. You know, I understand how developers are incentivized. You want to build brand new shiny things. They don't want to make iterations off the same thing over and over again. But yet those developers don't have marketing experience or understand the customers. So I'm able to decipher the customer need, the brand need, the marketing need, and the way the developer needs to understand it to say, hey, if you want people to engage with this feature or a feature, it needs to be something they're actually asking for. Just because we can build it doesn't mean that we should. We should only be focusing on things that are actually going to improve the customer journey, that improve the customer experience. Here's the brand tracker feedback. Here's the customer you know, um, segmentation that we are looking at. This is why we need to be focusing on young adults. And this is a way you can build your product to appear to young adults differently than you know, 40-year-olds, you know, whatever that may be. And so that's kind of how I just uh, use my technical background to help the product folks understand the marketing business needs in a way that they can understand and they can be incentivized to do that work and prioritize that work. Ashley, I think that being a leader of a growth team is challenging for a few reasons. Because on one hand, you have to have a really creative experience. Like the creative of the marketing messages you're sending has to be great. It has to be personalized to your point. It has to be fairly technical in the setup of how you like automate On the other hand, you have to be super data-driven, you have to bring insights to light, and you have to use data to make decisions, and it has to all be based in ROI. And then there's also like a product experience that has to be built. There's how you interact with engineers and your entire tech stack. I heard a smart executive coach of mine once say that our direct reports respect what we inspect, meaning whatever we pay the most attention to 
that's what a team is going to understand is most important. As a leader, what do you look for in your team to indicate that they're doing a great job? Like, what do you really reward? And and how do you lead your team in a way that helps motivate all of these different areas where they have to be successful? I think for me, there's three main things I look for in my team to see progress or see growth and how they are performing. One, it's about looking ahead, right? So we all have our standard list of things we need to work on our projects that are day-to-day work. But people I think are they're going to be the most successful, the ones that can look one to two steps ahead of that and say, hey, but this is what I'm doing right now. But I'm seeing this thing off in the distance that I'm a little bit concerned about or I want to investigate further. And they proactively go after that as well. Not so much like adding extra work to their plate, but they're at least being mindful of that there's other factors happening around them that they need to consider. So that's one. The other thing is I look for people who are really great collaborators. I am a person like I know I can't do everything by myself. So I often encourage and like seek out others who want to work with me. And so when my team takes on that similar approach, it makes me feel good that they're going to care about work a working style that I care about and you know not trying to hoard all of the work not trying to take credit for everything and like only being about them and being able to share that work share the opportunity and make sure one like they're they're not getting overburdened with efforts or you know projects but they're also talking to the right stakeholders to make sure we actually having all the right voices in the room uh, to get that project done and like ultimately being a best collaborator so the third thing that I look for out of my team are people who are great creatives, innovative thinkers, and like problem solvers. So for me, one thing I love about my engineering degree that I think it's made me a really good critical thinker and a really good problem solver, where I can easily break down bigger issues into the smaller buckets and figure out a way, a creative way to solve that. So I look for my team to be able to do the same thing and just bring to the table a different point of view. And again, be able to tap into their creative instincts to say, hey, this is what I think this could be. I thought this through. This is the reason why this could or couldn't work. Um, and that really, to me, sets uh, my team apart from others who may not be assessing problems in the same way. In our intro, we mentioned your mentorship. That is a, a thing that you love to do on the side. I'm curious what advice you'd give to to young women. I'm a, I'm a dad of, of two daughters who sometimes exhibit uh, all sorts of entrepreneurial spirit. And um, I'm just curious, what advice would you give to, to young women from, from super young to in college or, or maybe just starting their career who are interested in becoming entrepreneurs? The first thing I would say is just do it, right? And not to like bite Nike, but I think that that's the number one thing that holds not just women up, but people in general is that fear of failure. And doing what you can to quiet that voice that says the what ifs, the maybes, oh, I don't know, someone might not like it. As long as we can quiet that voice and just push through and just see what you can do with it, right? I think becoming an entrepreneur just means you are all you are is really someone who is okay with failure, right? I failed many times. I've lost lots of money making, you know, mistakes with business, my own business or investing in other businesses. But you have to be willing to make those mistakes and try, but also learn from that mistake for your next iteration. 
The other thing I would say is entrepreneurship is not a solo project. That's something I had to learn a long time ago. It's like, oh, it's my idea. They'll always tell you like, no one will ever like love your idea the way you love it. So just go forward on your own, which is cool, but you're going to struggle. It's going to take you way much, way longer to achieve that goal than if you were to find someone to go along with you, whether it's an employee, whether it's a business partner, whether it's just like a good friend that you know is here to support your business ideas and you can bounce things off of. But it's you're never going to be super successful trying to accomplish it all by yourself. So get comfortable with sharing your ideas with others early, getting feedback. And I think with those two things, like, like, like no fear attitude and being willing to work with others to move, will move yourself forward um, in any kind of entrepreneurship endeavor. A common question that we get from all kinds of different brands, from marketing leaders, when they're trying to increase the lifespan of a customer or they're trying to increase conversion or they're trying to increase basket sizes. But in particular, I think increase the duration of time that somebody will spend with the brand. They typically don't know how to think about solving that problem. They will do all kinds of things. They'll throw new offers or they'll try content or they'll X and Y and Z. When you think about how do we just get a user to stay with us for X amount more time, how do you pick the duration of time that's correct for an increase in retention as a goal? Like, do you go for three months? Do you start with a week? Do you start with days? And then how do you think about solving that problem using owned channel in particular, but paid media as well? So in terms of the timeline, it's going to be product you know, specific. It's not, I can't say like, oh, for Amazon Music, if you spend one extra week with us, well, you'll get X dollars more um, because lifetime value models are typically three, five years out. So like a day here, a week here, even a month here, they may not be as impactful. What I think the best way to think about it is, again, from a financial standpoint, is looking at how you your company calculates your LTV and is it based off of you know three years? Is it based off of number of hours you're listening to? And get really clear on what the right metric is that you need to move in order to keep people engaged more. Because for music, for example, is it doesn't it doesn't matter like whether you're like a of course want you to be a subscriber for longer. So how I think about retention is whether or not you are you continue to pay us month to month. But you have to step that back and say, what does it require a customer to do on a daily basis for them to want to stay an additional month and pay us additional whatever? And for us, it's around increasing the engagement. So increasing the hours listened, increasing the number of songs that they stream or the number of podcasts they listen to, right? Increasing the way they engage with the app, how many app opens are happening on a regular, on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis. So you have to go really deep to understand what's the right metric that you need to move to get people to stay longer. Is it a month? Is it a week? That's a secondary ask. The question is, what is the baseline metric you have to move first to get them to stay engaged longer? And then you can do some test and learning with your LTV models to say, is it if we improve LTV by, you know, if we improve engagement or retention by X month, our LTV increases by X dollars, right? That's all financial exercise. 
but you really first need to go from a product standpoint, the engagement to say what metric has to move first. So that's the intro for the first part. The second part, how do you understand which channels paid doesn't really work. Once you're already in the product, we've already acquired you. I shouldn't be spending any more money for you to stay, right? If anything, only thing I would offer is like, if I, if you're going to cancel, maybe I'll offer an incentive to like, Hey, take this, you know, same experience for a little bit less for a short period of time to kind of keep them here. That's a cancel save initiative, like a, like a retention initiative, but that's really, really a last resort, but you shouldn't be spending additional money to keep people in. If you have to consistently give away discounts and a bunch of stuff to keep people, then you are, you basically are training people to expect free stuff, free money. And that's not a good way to keep your customers engaged. Instead, it's better to understand what's the right channel of communication and then what's the right content that's necessary to keep that person engaged and delighted with your product. So for example, email, a lot of people like to default to email, but a lot of people don't understand. Most people are not reading those damn emails. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm cutting <laughs> <good>. that. <laughs> sorry. No one's reading those emails and people are typically opting out of those emails. So once someone opts out of that email, you lose the ability to talk to them forever. So you have to be really careful about what you email and how often you email so you don't encourage an early opt-out and you lose that customer channel forever. Same with push notifications, in-app communications. We'll have to do a deep dive of how your customers engage with your product to understand what's the right channel first and then what's the right content that's really important for them to understand. So for music, do people really care about understanding the new albums that are coming out? Do they really want to discover new artists? Do they really care about creating their own playlist? Like what is it about the product that keeps them excited and keep giving them more and more of that? And that's going to be different for each customer segmentation, which is why clear segmentation is really important. So you can be able to push different things from people at the right time based on how we want them to continue to engage. And and what's your theory there? Is your theory sort of like test different offers and then whatever people respond to, repeat it again in the future and assume the past is a predictor? Or how do, how do you even start when there's, you know, maybe 10 reasons why somebody might stay determining what's best for that segment? So a lot of this goes, how, how deep can your data go in terms of understanding how customers engage, right? So for example, if I push a new feature that helps like randomly generate a new playlist based off of past likes. If just because some group of people like that now does not necessarily always mean that they will continue to like that. So it's really around like making sure your data can consistently tell you whether or not those metrics continue to matter. So we here at Amazon, I'm sure most companies, Spotify does the same thing. I'm sure Apple does the same thing. Every time someone engages with the product in any way, we're collecting information about that and being able to track that to, you know, retention metrics. So I don't have the mentality of just because it, it worked well in the past, it will always work well in the future. There are some baseline things that that does like stand for like basic things like, hey, liking certain songs or creating a playlist, for example, we know will always be an indicator of longer term engagement. But if, you know, I tell you how to use this new cool feature, maybe for the month that we're promoting it on the platform, people like it, 
But once we stop promoting on the platform, if people forget about it, then we want to know that that feature no one really cares about. And two, we can't rely on those types of features to, for continued engagement because it tests something else. So we always have to be in an experimentation mode to see what is working. And this is also important to understand for regional audiences or global audiences as well. What works in the U.S. does not always work in Japan or Latin America or Europe, right? And so um, global companies tend to get into the headspace of like letting U.S. guide all their strategies. But sometimes you have to get really clear about your local strategy as well to understand how do people in Latin America listen to music differently than those in France and those in Japan and be able to be tracking different metrics to make sure that we're promoting the right thing to drive that engagement. Is there a feature or a tactic that you swore would work? Um, and through these test and learn cycles, you were just, uh, that did not work, or maybe the opposite of that, something that you were just not so sure about and turns out users loved it or responded to it? So I'll give an example around what we call ATC, our artist taste collection. It's one of the first splash screens that customers see when they're first installing Amazon Music. We thought that that was going to be such an easy win to like grab people's data up front and their preferences up front so we can immediately start giving good recommendations. What we didn't realize is that people were just so anxious to like jump into the product that they skipped it. And without knowing that that them answering that short survey was the key thing to enjoying their experience on the product. And so once we saw that customer behavior, we had to rethink how we introduced ATC or how we reintroduced it later. If someone did choose to skip it, we had to say, okay, great. Within the next time they come back to the app, we have to reshow it again and then explain why it's important. So we don't have to just to put it there. We have to say, hey, give us this information so this as this informs your recommendation. And once we did that, we reintroduced it after the second app opened and explained it. People, oh, I need to do this thing, right? And so we just inherently did, thought people would just know what to do, but they didn't. And we had to kind of backtrack a little bit and like relaunch that feature in a different way. So we got better engagement. Ashley, what do you see as the major roadblock to creating a more equitable and diverse corporate environment, particularly in technology? Oh, I can talk about this all day, but as like a black woman in the tech world, I, I'm one of few, right? I'm sure you've heard this from a lot of people. I think the it is hard to say like, oh, it's not as easy as hire more black people or hire more women. That doesn't really get the job done. What it does, you need to put those people in high enough positions where they have decision-making ability and they have leadership opportunity. Just how we know like representation matters in everyday life, it also matters in your work. So I need to see there's somebody above me, one level or two levels above me that look like me that say, okay, great, I can achieve here. And as there's more people of color or women in those leadership positions, that's going to get people to be more excited about coming into that space where they now can feel like maybe I can be accepted. I can speak for like my time at Google. I was living in San Francisco. When I first joined my team, I was the only Black person on the team. When I left the team, I was still the only Black person on the team. That's not a good thing, right? And so that's feedback that I gave 
you know, my organization, like over the five years, four and a half years I was there, we did not improve this. I was the only person I guess I was able to get promoted and move up, but there's issues with the fact that I can be here for four and a half years on the same team and never see someone else that looks like me above me or below me. And so that's one of those things where I think we need to continue to push our tech leadership to understand where you place people is important. The opportunity you give them is important. And then also the last thing is opening up where those people can work. Part of the reason why it was hard to recruit, you know, black and brown people to tech was because tech was centered in San Francisco, which is not a black and brown people friendly place. So I love there's places like Atlanta that are budding with a great tech scene. I love that New York is starting to bud as a tech scene as well, Austin, Texas. So there's a lot more diversity in locations where people no longer feel they have to move and uproot their life to one of the most expensive cities in the country to have a job in tech. Totally understand the idea that there have to be more women, people of color in leadership positions so they can just sort of serve as representation for a path to get there. But for you with people who are more your direct reports, what's the conversation that you have with, say, a Black woman on your team? Or what conversations would you encourage listeners to have to say, hey, I want you to have more power over how we shape our culture and how we shape our hiring practices, how we help make sure that we're an ecosystem that is extremely welcoming to people of all backgrounds, because this is important. Like, how do you have that conversation? How do you make sure that your team helps feel that sense of empowerment and that invitation to speak up about what their experience is so they can either start to create it for others in a better way or make sure that there's a good check and balance system happening when hiring decisions in particular are being made? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is what you just said, making sure there's an open door policy for feedback to not just me as a hiring manager, but to overall HR who's making these hiring decisions. One thing that I appreciate that we had at Google as we, I was leaving, they had created like a diversity like hiring can, council. So everybody had to be like any new person, whether you're a person of color or not, had to still be like vetted through this council to make sure we Google was doing a good enough job of hiring people that were adding value versus like look just the same. So that's something I would encourage like my team, my direct reports to participate in or you know lead or kickstart something like that. I'd recommend that they would also get involved in company ERGs. It's typically the ERGs are leading the the way here in terms of diversity, equity and inclusion. And the work that they do then informs what HR is responsible or required to do. So getting involved there as well. And the other thing I also ask my team to get involved in is like, if they are a person of color, get your friends, call your friends, share these roles with your network, post it to your LinkedIn as well. I'm open for direct referrals for open roles. And so I know smart people who have smart, everyone has smart friends. So bring your people on board and don't be afraid to invite them in. That's what everyone else is doing, right? So let's do the same thing and make sure we tap into our other super smart, you know, women or people of color and bring them into the fold um, and not be shy about that. So Ashley, we love to end with a couple fun questions um, and dig into your brain a little bit and, and some of the things that you're thinking about. I'm curious, is there an industry or a trend, you know, outside of 
uh, music apps and entertainment apps? Is there a music or an industry or trend that you're watching right now or super curious about, excited about? I always keep an eye on the fashion industry, even though I'm not like actively involved in fashion anymore. I'm always watching to see how they innovate. And something that I've been super excited to see, there's this, there's been a shift with the different ways that we show our, our bodies, you know, there's full size women, women with disabilities, you know, mannequins now are plus size, you know, all these different things. I'm super excited to see that it's no longer just like lip service that we, you know, serve all sizes, we serve all brands. It's showing up in our advertising. It's showing up in the way we're not over editing photos. You know, we're getting people who have, you know, maybe only one limb or Winnie Harlow is a great example of a model who's got vitiligo. I believe it's what it's called, where she's got discoloration on her skin, but she's one of the top models in the world and they don't require her to cover that up. So I love seeing that representation in like the fashion cosmetic industry that it's allowing for more people to see themselves in that space. And we don't, we no longer have to adhere to uh, one standard of beauty or one standard of like athleticism even. I know what a celebration, this notion that now brands who are not inclusive are just like losing out entirely. That financial results say like, sorry, you got to totally change your ways or you're never going to keep up like such a nice empowering change. Ashley, my favorite question to ask, I always like to invite everybody to either you can call it talk positive trash or just gas up a brand that you really love. What's a brand that you're truly loyal to? You think they have a really great user experience or they offer some kind of value to you that keeps you coming back? What's a brand you're loyal to and why? So this is going to be probably, again, like more into like the fashion space. I still really love Nike. I know we nodded to them earlier. This because one, as an athlete, I have always been like dressed in like Nike apparel for whatever team I've been on. So I, my love for Nike has been like brewing since I was a child. But what I love is that they are probably the ones who are spearheading like that trend of being inclusive. You know, they had the first marketing advertising with the woman in a hijab, right? And things like that where I... I'm always going to be brand loyal. I don't really care how much the shoes cost. I don't care that these leggings cost $120. All I'm doing is going to the gym and that I'm going to buy only Nike leggings, right? Because I feel that they get me all the time, right? I never have to question my sizing work. I never have to question, will the shoes be comfortable? It's consistent with the things that matter, but innovative with the things that I didn't think about. And that is what I really love. My favorite book is actually called Shoe Dog by the founder of Nike. It's just any person in marketing, any person wanting to be an entrepreneur, I highly recommend you read Shoe Dog because it is super inspiring to understand how if someone comes up with these ideas, how you pull it together and get the doubters to finally believe in you, right? And so just like the entire story, the arc of the brand, the arc of the company, I think he's got really smart people working there from marketing and a product development standpoint. And I will always stand for Nike. Love it. I, I literally have a, a calendar um, item on my calendar tomorrow. That's like check Nike app because there's a pair of dunk, dunk lows that I want dropping at 10 o'clock. And I'm like, I better not forget. Cause I gotta, I gotta get in there. So 
not many brands can pull that off. Yeah, that they like re they can reinvent the fandom. It's amazing. Like it's an amazing um, business that they have there, and the way that they've created this loyalty. It's like the products are always top notch. The service is great. It's the same. You need to be the same and inventive when when you don't you didn't expect it, and that's definitely the best combination for a brand and product mashup. Awesome, Ashley. Thanks so much for joining us on Room for Growth. Before we go, is there a place people can can find you on on, on the web? Anything that uh, if if somebody were to want to connect with you that that you could share? Basic LinkedIn. Honestly, I don't have a website for myself. I probably should make one. But yeah, find me on LinkedIn. Happy to chat. I love marketing. I love product. I love sharing the story and helping others. So anyone who wants to reach out, happy to chat. Well, so glad you joined us today. Yeah, this conversation was super fun. I feel like I say this every week and mean it every week, which is, man, I wish we could have spent another hour just digging into the nerdy side of marketing and talking tactics and talking shop. So I'll have to call you again soon and see if we can get you back on. But for today, thank you for being here. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Good to have you all here. And we'll see you next week. Awesome. Thank you, guys.